Welcome to Under the Fig Tree Podcast. In today's episode, hosts Reverend Micah Glenn and Reverend Dr. Ben Haupt sit down with a special guest as they meditate under the fig tree. What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Under the Fig Tree. Uh, I am your host, Reverend Micah Glenn, joined by my co-host, Reverend Dr. Ben Haupt. You know, and now I, like now that I've done the introduction that way, I always go back and forth, everyone, whether or not I should introduce me and Ben at the beginning of the podcast. This morning, it felt natural, so I went with it. If you would, we do read the comments. Let us know in the comments. Does it matter when I introduce us as the host and co-host, or do you like it when I just say, what's up, what's up, how are you, Ben? Which one do you prefer? And whichever one you prefer... I'm going to do the other one. No, I'm just messing around. Ben, how are you, bro? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm all right. I, I noticed, I always have to comment on this. I noticed today, maybe for the first time, that you wore a pair of shoes that you've worn on another episode. Because I was, for a while, I was starting to believe that you were buying a new pair of shoes for every single new episode that we did. I Listen, if we could find a budget for that, that would be incredible. And I would definitely do it. But so... I bought these shoes very intentionally. And and so this is the thing. So everybody, Ben's made a big deal about my shoes in the past. And I like my sneakers. I like to wear them. But the reality is, is some of my sneakers just aren't probably approved by the dress code of the seminary. Nobody's ever said anything to me, but some of them are like all red and black. I, well, anyway, I don't think anybody pays that much attention to them. But my point is this, is that um, A... When you get a new pair of shoes, I think the very first thing you want to do is break them in because then if there is an occasion to wear them and they're not broken in, I, this happened to me a week ago. I bought a new pair of black dress shoes, didn't wear them, went to a funeral, and they destroyed my feet just because mm. they're stiff leather. So you got to break them in. So but, so, so uh, uh, Under the Fig Tree podcast is the place to break in shoes? Is that the so, it's a very active podcast so here? So these shoes that I'm wearing, they are Nikes, but they're brown leather. Uh, they do have a white. Oh, no, no, a tan swoosh. Sorry. Anyway, but the point is I can wear these with khakis and sweaters. It's, it's wintertime. I, I have like another pair of casual dress shoes, but they're cloth. So my feet would, my feet would get cold. Uh, and so these are weather and work appropriate. I am forever amused by your shoes. Uh, we should talk about our guest because <laughs> I'm pretty sure so much more valuable than the Nikes I'm wearing today. In I had no idea what I was going to learn when I came <laughs> on this podcast. If you if you want to know anything about shoes, Doctor Kolb, I am your guy. Wow. Uh, well, we're joined by. Well, we usually just say Doctor because. Reverend Doctor, you are also a pastor, like many of the faculty, all of the faculty here. And we're all ordained. Robert Kolb, your full name. Everybody calls you Bob on faculty. Uh, a couple years ago when I came on staff, you told me to call you Bob, and I, I said Dr. Kolb. There probably will never be a day when I just call you Bob. How are you, Dr. Kolb? I, I am fine, and I'm, I'm really glad to know more about shoes than I ever knew before. There, I tell Micah, I, I have a pair of brown shoes, and I have a pair of black shoes, and I have a pair of walking shoes, and that's just pretty good. You're that's a, that's a about it. Head of me, they, <laughs> they probably pay you more. On, on one episode, Ben asked how many shoes I have, and I, I genuinely, I, I don't count them, but... We're going to ask his wife when Ben's, she comes on at some point. Mm-hmm. 
Ben's assertion that I was buying shoes for the podcast is because I could probably wear a different pair of shoes for the podcast and not wear the same pair of shoes for months. Imelda Marcus could always say the same thing. The wife of the Philippine president who had 8,700 pairs of shoes when, when they got tossed out of the palace. <laughs> See? I don't have 8,700 pair. I know that. Uh, that may, that's a rough estimate, I think. But. I, well, I don't have anywhere close to that. I have less than... I was going to say 30. <laughs> it, well, and that, it, it might be close. Anyway, I just, so there's, there's a class of people that are calling different things sneakerheads. I just, I just like sneakers. I like the different styles. They're, some aren't comfortable. Some are comfortable. I learned a new term. Did you know that there's a, a term sneakerhead? No. I didn't know that term, but no. Micah is a sneakerhead. Yeah. But it occurs to me, Ben, um, <laughs> This puts a whole new cast on our wanting to walk in somebody else's shoes. Oh, yes, that's right. Before we say anything sure. about them. or Well, if you walk You'd in my shoes, they're going to most likely be broken shoes. in because yeah. I do it very intentionally. That's, that's very good. And they'll, they'll probably be very comfortable because feet comfort is a big thing to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, and this is not a podcast about shoes. Oh. So... Um, <laughs> We're, uh, we're, we're very interested to, um, you're, you're just fresh back from um, the, the mother country or das Vaterland or something along those lines, Deutschland, Deutschland. Um, so so uh, welcome back to the United States, um, your, your adoptive country for a time. Um, and and uh, we want to talk a little bit about what you teach here at Concordia Seminary. Uh, some of the, the work that you've done in the, the realm of publications, um, and then uh, we'll move on to a, a few questions about your, your personal journey. But give us a little uh, taste of what you do here at Concordia Seminary. Uh, I've been here for 30 years, it's, uh, or almost 30 years, 29, um, and about half that time in retirement. Um, but Retirement wasn't a concept in the 16th century, and my students all think that I w was born in the 16th <laughs> century. Uh, and, and so I've seen no reason really to give up teaching. Uh, I don't go to committee meetings much anymore. But, um, <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, but uh, the seminary is just a great community in which to work. Um, mm. uh, the, the, the colleagues are supportive and... and uh, the discussion, both with students and um, uh, colleagues, is j just amazing. I think um, one of the reasons I keep teaching is that I learn so much from my students. Uh, they keep me in contact with, uh, with the world. Um, I always say this isn't the way the administration told the story, but uh, I always say that when I came here 30 years ago, uh, they didn't want me to have too much contact with students, so they sent me overseas for half the year. They say we got a grant for an institute for mission studies if um, we would help post-Soviet churches. Mm. So we got to spend um, about three months of the year in places like Russia, Estonia, Latvia, Hungary a couple times, Poland, um, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia. And I've, I've then expanded uh, those opportunities beyond uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, Victor Raj, our colleague uh, from southern India, 
uh, has got me into uh, teaching in, in India uh, four times uh, for about a month. Uh, one time was a little shorter, but uh, India, Japan, uh, Taiwan, uh, a number of places, and also in Europe, uh, particularly at Westfield House mm -hmm. in Cambridge, where we have exchange students usually. And then also um, in Sweden. I was just in Sweden a month ago mm. for a week lecturing at uh, two different places and, and doing a podcast for a mission society, so mm. or a series of podcasts. Um, I teach, basically, my sort of core is, is the Lutheran Confessions. My dissertation research in the history department at uh, the University of Wisconsin in Madison was was on the background of the formula of Concord, the development of, of the text of the formula out of the controversies of that time, trying to figure out what Luther and Melanchthon really had taught the boys. <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, that's where my teaching's been, been focused, but I've taught a course on baptism and I'm teaching in our winter, I'm a graduate course on Luther's Doctrine of Justification and debates over it today. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I've really had a, a great opportunity to expand my understanding of the faith and of, of the Lutheran tradition particularly um, in the classroom and in dialogue with students and, and colleagues. Wow, that's really a lot of fun. You're, um, uh, you, you won't say this, so I will. Um, the world recognizes you as probably one of the foremost researchers on Martin Luther and especially uh, the, his, uh, his followers, his disciples, the, the second generation Lutherans. You, you um, recently, a few years ago, published uh, the Oxford Handbook of Martin Luther's Theology. Is that the, That's, the right title? Yeah. Um, and Oxford doesn't just let anybody <laughs> edit those volumes. No. Um, you have you have uh, wonderful colleagues all around the world, Irena Dangle, um, and uh, uh, you have you have just um, blessed the world with a lot of Luther scholarship that has gotten sort of outside the the Missouri Synod circles. Um, you're kind of uh, well, you've you're known. Uh, far and wide outside of uh, the LCMS. So enough of that. But you, you, um, I want our listeners to know if this is their introduction to um, Bob Kolb that um, the world is paying attention to you and uh, our listeners are just joining the Bob Kolb Club on this episode. <laughs> the, the sad part about that is that there isn't much competition nowadays. <laughs> um, and I hope that some of our listeners, at least one of, of those who listen, um, will be interested in Luther scholarship. What I do, I do find encouraging uh, is that uh, there are some very bright young people, uh, not only in this country, but uh, people like my former student, now colleague, Eric Herrmann, uh, is a good example, but, but there are those people. The, the problem that Luther scholarship is facing today is that um, when I was a student, I could go to the University of Wisconsin, and my advisor was a Calvin scholar, but but he was at a, a name university. Uh, today, most of those positions, like that that was held by uh, Louis Spitz, whose father was a professor here, whose nephew Bob Rosine is our colleague, um, mm. 
Lou was at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, today at Stanford, uh, there's someone whose focus is not even intellectual history at all, to say nothing of specifically the Reformation, but is in social history, mm. which, which is an important discipline too, but or sub-discipline. Um, but uh, most of our colleagues do not have the research time because they're at seminaries and, and small Christian colleges or, or perhaps uh, junior colleges or others. But there's a lot of interest among younger people now in, in Luther. And I think he's a, he's a theologian for the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, there may have been times when it, it was harder to connect him to the sort of prevailing societal mood and atmosphere. Um, but today I think he comes up with a direct uh, kind of uh, address to the kinds of human problems that people have today. It's not the 16th century, it's a totally different social context. But, um, but Luther's answers, uh, the way he, he redefined the theological terminology by going back to the Bible, um, that's something that I think speaks in various cultures around the world. And, and outside Lutheranism, um, uh, he's, he's appealing to people in, in across the spectrum of Christian denominations. Well, I, we just had a, a conversation um, started with one of our admissions officers, Jesse Keeker, got an email and he had a phone call with the guy uh, who has been, they might even already have a PhD in something. Well, anyway, he's been serving in the Church of God in Christ, came across Luther, mind is blown by Luther's theology, and now is heavily considering becoming a student here, willing to do the MDiv and go through the whole process, although he already has advanced degrees. Uh, to become a, a Lutheran pastor, yeah. uh, just because you know he's—it's one of those things where I, I tell people all the time, and I experienced this in my time as a domestic missionary in, in Ferguson. Is we have a, a very rich theology and a radical approach uh, to the gospel and justification, and we, we're do, just because it's fresh from class and all the synonyms that come along with what we mean by justification, yeah. which leads to salvation. The people in a broken world, especially in a postmodern world, who are looking for meaning and purpose and all this other stuff, and it's our theology speaks into all of this. Yeah, everything that people are looking for in the world today, our theology, not just has like answers, but like real, legitimate, truthful answers yeah. that resonate, uh, that gives them hope here and now, yeah. and uh, it's it's refreshing. So I a hundred percent agree. I I tell people all the time, like, well, it's, not, it's our theology is timing-wise in the world, I I would say it's timeless because I'm a Lutheran, Uh, but especially now, here and now in the world we live in, and we just need to find a way, in my opinion, and the people, uh, because, you know, different people communicate different ways, culturally, different people reach different people to go out and and share this word of God with people because because it matters, uh, and it'll be remarkable. And then, you know, young people, I think, I don't know, you let me know. Uh, It seems like, uh, as I look around the graduate school, more and more when I was graduating it felt like less of my classmates were thinking about postgraduate work Mm -hmm. but it seems like maybe there's a a new resurgence of young people willing to take up different types of scholarship as well yeah yeah and I think that's good and and there aren't maybe academic positions for all of them but we need pastors who have that kind of training right Um, uh, we are dealing with an ever more educated uh, laity Mm -hmm. 
but also for those who are dealing with with those who have a high school education. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that expanded knowledge um, can alienate you, I suppose, from from everyday life, but it also can enrich your ability to perceive what's going on in the world. Sure. Um, but uh, frankly, I have most of my classmates uh, who have done very well with just an MDiv, um, and 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 that kind of training, I think, uh, we do especially effectively here, mm -hmm. uh, combining life in the parish with uh, with life in the classroom. Yeah. So I um, think we're doing a lot of things right uh, here at home. I agree. I hope. I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I, tell us a little bit about your your journey to to seminary <laughs> and. Um, some of your teachers um, that were were here, but but what what got you interested in in seminary in the first place? Uh, people sometimes ask me how I got interested in Luther scholarship, mm. <laughs> and I think it was um, my great aunt Peggy and Uncle Pete had this huge. Well, it was I was three years old when I first saw it. I suppose this huge picture of Martin Luther on the wall. There he stood with his Bible in his hand and and he was ready to confess. And I didn't know who he was, but I knew he deserved to be on the wall. <laughs> so I, I traced my interest in Luther back, back to nice. um, Aunt Peggy and Uncle Pete. Um, but I was really seriously thinking about uh, architecture um, I'm not very good in mathematics, so that probably wouldn't have been the way to go, but, but I, I like the design of things. I like to figure out uh, how things are ordered and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But in seventh grade, I finally decided to become a pastor, I think in part because my parents didn't want me to become a pastor. Our congregation yes. had beaten up on a pastor, and they didn't want little Bobby to, uh, to be subject to that. And I think that really helped make it clear to me that it was my decision. Mm -hmm. um, but parental support, I think, is very important, and my parents were finally behind me and proud of me and so forth. But um, uh, and, and originally, I thought probably I would—Greek uh, fascinated me, so I, I thought I would become a New Testament scholar. But I've always been interested in history in general, uh, not just in Luther. And so I finally decided to go to graduate school in uh, in— what we called in those days at the Secular University Reformation Studies. After seminary. After seminary. Yeah. And um, so, I, yeah, I had, I had a number of really good teachers uh, all along the way. First year of, well, I should start with um, junior high and high school, mm -hmm. particularly my Latin teacher in high school, mm. also took time with a few of us to to teach us Greek. She was a Baptist Sunday school teacher and knew Koine Greek so she could read her New Testament. Mm. And she, um, I, I had three years of, of one afternoon a week Greek, uh, which was a, a great help along the way. Um, but then uh, uh, in college, in high school and, and, and college both, I had, I had good instructors who's uh, about whom I still can tell anecdotes um, uh, 60, 70 years later. And uh, Where was undergrad? At Concordia uh, St. Paul. St. Paul. And then yeah. at, at the Concordia Senior College in Fort Wayne. Yeah. And then I came here. 
in, uh, I used to tell my students before you were born, and now I say before your parents were born. <laughs> um, but uh, in, uh, I came in 1963. Yeah. Stayed for an STM, uh, Master of Sacred Theology, and left in 68 for the University of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And got to Germany then for the first time, and in 52 years ago. And since that time, we've been back very often because when I agreed to uh, to uh, uh, do my thing in Eastern Europe, uh, they said the uh, seminary administration said, in reward for that and your two quarters of teaching here, we had quarters instead of semesters in those days. Um, you can have three months off for research and writing, and uh, Germany is the place f for someone like me to do that. Mm. Um, Herz, uh, Herzog Bibliothek. Herzog um, August. Herzog August. Yeah. Bibliothek in, in Wolf Wolfenbüttel. Wolfenbüttel, where you visited us. Yes. Um, before most of our hearers were born, maybe. 20 years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah. yeah, I remember walking around and seeing the old town. and Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a, a lovely, lovely time. And what, a, what an honor to sit in the, well, for sure, the world's best Reformation uh, library mm. with yeah. first editions. And um, I remember them bringing out a book, you know, from... Um, Probably, well, it was a Jacob Andrei who was the Dreyendreisig Predigten. Oh, yeah. So, 1500s. Um, pretty, pretty impressive. 68. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> it, this happened once. When I took uh, Dr. Cope for Luther from a, a course called Luther to Concord, a history elective. And he, he brought in, is it Johann Spangenberg? Would, yeah. Uh, I think it or was a. His son, Syriacus, maybe. No, maybe it was Johann. It, it was a it was a commentary, I think, on the Old or New Testament or something like that, and he just passes it around, and you get this book that's five hundred years old in your hands. You're just like, I don't. Are we supposed <laughs> to wear special gloves or something like that? This doesn't feel natural, Doctor Cole. But I don't want to touch it for too long. But yeah, it's just remarkable again that if you come to school here. Uh, you get to learn from people who learn from people who have access to this type of stuff, and it just opens your mind to, well, the history of the church, uh, what the people were up to, their care, their desire for the world, not just for their instance in the world, but beyond and things like that. And it's just, uh, you know, it kind of, for me, it, it was it was a shaping thing of, of what we do here is important, to yeah. say the least. Uh, and does make a difference, but yeah. Well, anyway, Germany. Uh, yeah. All this, all this talk about rare books um, sparked in me a question that I, I think is really important because I, I don't know if you've ever been on the record to confirm or deny this, and this is not my <laughs> only one of these kind of questions. Um, but um, our our uh, colleague Werner Klein, um, a professor uh, in Germany, uh, once once alleged that you had in rare book rooms found the elixir of life and it, it was some kind <laughs> of strange alchemy with the the dust on rare books but that had had prolonged your life and had somehow have you heard this Shh. okay so so you can neither confirm nor deny that that is that is accurate well Werner Klein is a very good friend he, he taught for many years at our, our uh, theological faculty sister uh, seminary in Oberursel, north of Frankfurt. 
Um, so what he knows, I, he knows a lot of things I don't know. <laughs> it reminds me of the scene from, um, from, from Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is in the rare book room and he's sorting, sorting through <laughs> all these, these uh, great ancient tomes and uh, dusty things. And, and that's where he finds uh, all about the, the one ring of power. So, um, you know, we, we should be encouraging young people to come and sit in rare book rooms. It is um, exciting. It is. I think so. It's an acquired taste. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we uh, we shouldn't let people know, but uh, there are a lot of projects you could work on without going to Europe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we've got a collection. I forget the statistics. You probably know the statistics, Ben, from your years in the library, but we've got a, a really excellent collection. Um, one of the best. There, there are a number of, of really good ones in North America, uh, but in terms of being able to research uh, in the history of Lutheranism particularly, uh, but also we've got some medieval um, uh, works in Cunabula, they're called, yeah. Yeah. the first uh, printings after Gutenberg. Um, so we, we, the, our library is, is a very impressive um, collection for Reformation studies, but also in a number of other areas. I mean, our exegetical work, uh, you can do work on any book of the Bible, I think, and, and go a long way before you find a better collection than we have here. Yeah, we have we have 6,000 volumes in the rare book uh, uh, library, yeah. Yeah. and um, and that that is um, the definition of a rare book is uh, printed prior to 1850, uh, but in doing the big renovation of the library, uh, we found an, several additional collections and hmm. now i think we're um it's it's uh, very um on on good authority to say that we're we are over ten thousand uh rare volumes mm -hmm. um so yeah and a lot of um we have several volumes that we have the only copy in the world mm -hmm. um, and that's that some are um the only printed copy left um certainly we have works uh that are one of a kind um like Bach's Bible, the, yeah. the, his commentary. Um, we have some, some Luther things, uh, first edition Luthers, um, mm. and some that uh, even have um, handwriting in them from various people. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I think uh, the history of the book and who used this book and the marginalia in the side, the little jots um they used to be like oh you're messing up the book and you know, who cares about those and now come to find out that's the really interesting stuff because yeah. that's where you can um a lot of people have copies of uh, whatever book but we only have the one copy that has uh jots in the margin from some famous guy yeah right yeah you, you said something and i want to lean into it a little bit uh because maybe it was formative for you then, it's been formative for me, and I know it's formative for Ben. So we have these opportunities from the seminary, from Concordia Seminary, to go study abroad. And if I say Oberusel to somebody, I, most people are going to say, what is, where is that? But then when I, because I, I, I studied at Westfield, and I say, you can study at Cambridge University in England, and people go, oh, because Cambridge is one of those notable names. Uh, and it was very formative for me. I know Oberusel was very formative for you. 
but you've had an opportunity to teach at both. And so what, along those lines, what, is, what, is, what value is to studying abroad in Europe? Being a Lutheran in England is probably a little bit, well, I don't know. Germany, Lutheranism in Germany probably has different shapes like it does in America. But what value do you think it has for somebody who's thinking about it? I'm going to be a pastor someday. I need to get this degree. What would be the value of taking an extra year to get your Master of Divinity and studying abroad in Europe to learn the same, at least, topics that we would take here? Um, I think, you know, first of all, I must say that we ought to put a, a danger label on study abroad. Sure. Uh, it changes people. Radically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, they never quite think about the uh, world outside the United States or about life inside the United States in the same way. Um, I've always found uh, experiences in other uh, cultures and other countries uh, exciting, expanding, mm -hmm. stimulating, sometimes discouraging. Uh, walking the streets in Chennai and in South India is not always a very pleasant experience, but then there are sections of, of St. Louis walking the streets aren't a very pleasant experience, I yeah. suppose. Um, although I never see them anymore, but probably I should. Uh, but I think my life, I was a very hometown Iowa boy Sure. Uh, when I came to the seminary and not much different when I left the seminary. <laughs> Maybe a little different when I went to grad, uh, got into grad school for a year or so. Uh, but then going to Germany really... Well, it was it was Germany. It was the home of of my ancestors, but it it was um, it was also just a different way of thinking. Right. Uh, I know one of the students told another one of the students recently that I don't think like a U.S. American anymore. I think like a German. That's not really true. The Germans would be the first to tell you that. Uh, I, I, you I, don't I, qualify. I, I, uh, there's no mistaking. I have uh, my. My accent has been uh, taken for, nobody's ever thought that I come from around the corner, but they have thought that I probably come from other parts of Germany, but, uh, but not in, in the whole structure of my thinking and all. Hmm. Um, but it, it, it does just expand your ability to, to read the experiences also that you will go uh, within the United States. Um, uh, we may take somebody who grew up in suburban New York City or in Fort Dodge, Iowa, like I, I grew up in, and send them to New York City for the Fort Dodge boy and, and to Fort Dodge for the New York City boy. And, and so you're gonna, have, you're gonna have a variety of experiences, and just spending a year abroad is, uh, is so helpful. Um, one of the instructors at, at Westfield House in Cambridge told me once, we have two kinds of American students. One want to know why uh, people in England don't use the right size of paper, letter paper, <laughs> rather than A4. And the others want to know why the United States is probably the only place in the, United in the world where you don't have A4 paper uh, in the copy machine. And, uh, and uh, the one kind of student wants to know why are the English driving such small cars? And the other is saying, do we really need such large cars in the United States? Sure. So it, it just exposes you to, 
to um, a broader field of thinking in ways that you can't can't estimate otherwise. And then, secondly, um, in Oberursel, or if you go to Brazil or Korea, mm -hmm. you get to learn at least a little bit of a, another language, uh, and that that always is is expanding. Um, and even if you go to Westfield House uh, in Cambridge, you learn another language. It's called English. Right. English. <laughs> yeah, American right. Oxford English. English. It's a whole different <laughs> thing. Yeah. My, my wife Dorothy and I, we have this debate all the time because she lived in Northwest London until she was 13. Oh, yeah. And so she she doesn't have as much of an accent. So, like, Americans can still tell because of her vowels which probably will never change, but she doesn't have a British cadence to her oh, speech yeah. anymore. Uh, but it comes down to vocabulary. I don't know where my kids say chicken burger. I think that's the thing that bothers <laughs> me the most. But, but the, the year that we lived at Westfield house, that year of not owning a car and never feeling stuck yeah. was remarkable. Yeah. And having to come back to America and like saying like, well, let's go to the store. And then like, well, how are we going to get there? Cause we don't have a car was yeah. a little disturbing, but then only because you mentioned a four for the very first time, Dorothy, explained the paper size in England to me from a, like the A5 is exactly yeah. half the size of A4. And then I was like, mm, I don't want to say it makes sense because <laughs> I'm American, but man. Uh, but yeah, I, I would definitely agree with a lot of those different things. I, I tell students, especially that are afraid, not or have like reservations of going somewhere for, and I say, well, in England, they do it will be a different language but you can get there in the end because you're yeah. using you, you're, you, it's the same grammar same system and yeah. things like that and the words aren't necessarily foreign you just have to find the connector and you can get there together when you know they say certain things and you're like that means something different where i come from i don't think you're trying to be offensive so let's let's get to the bottom of this real yeah. quick. And, and the ground floor is zero that also bothers me anyway uh, but yeah, it's, I, that's what I say. So when I went to, before I went to Westfield House, I was just, let's just get through seminary. I went there because Dorothy's British and I visited their proposed in England and said, if I had an opportunity for Westfield House, I'd take it. And then when I got back after a year there, that's when I really started thinking about graduate school. Uh -huh. And then when I got back from my vicarage, side note, my, my vicarage supervisor is uh, related by marriage to Dr. Cole, mm. Bernie Ann Sorge. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, yeah. Is it his wife, Grace? Is that your cousin? No, no. Um, Bernie is a cousin of Pauline. There we go. Oh, right. There we go. Yeah, uh, she was an Ansorge. Sure. But then when I got back from my final year, just, I mean, professors that I really admired um, and I was in their classes started asking me, well, aren't you thinking about graduate school? Then they never asked me that before. And I don't know if they ask, don't ask any first or second year student that, but I, I definitely attributed to my year at Westfield house, mostly just because the, the style of education is yeah. different and it's good for you. Um, especially if you're going to think about graduate school it, systems outside of the U S make you really own what you're going to learn in ways that we don't necessarily do in America yeah. before you get to a graduate level of school. Yeah. They do it very early on in their education systems. Yeah. And so it, it just makes you sharp. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we often do on the podcast is we ask if you have any advice for prospective students and Michael will ask you that later on uh, your personal advice, but, but I'm, I'm interested in, um, advice for prospective students that Luther gave to uh, that next mm. generation and, and sort of how did um, 
how did the the earliest Lutherans, um, the the um, those who held the Augsburg Confession, they liked to to uh, they weren't known as Lutherans back then. Um, they uh, they were people of the Augsburg Confession. How did they raise up pastors for the church? Uh, they didn't have an active recruitment program. Um, I think because they didn't need it. Mm, yeah. The Reformation was such an exciting event. It was an exciting event, not just within the church, but for all of society. Uh, You've got 150 years after the Black Death in which there was was massive depopulation in some areas. Mm. Other areas were were prosperous because their neighboring areas hadn't been able to produce uh, because of all the farmers had died, mm-hmm. um, or many of them had died at least. Uh, so you've got you've got a, a, a 150 years of very slow progress in coming back to um, what might have been European normalcy before 1350, and um, and of course the world had changed in other ways. Uh, Gutenberg had had invented mu- movable type and so forth, and and there were other changes. Um, so you've got a, a world that that is longing for a different way of doing things. And that was especially true in the church. There was a, a, a crisis of pastoral care. Mm. And interestingly enough, indulgences were getting cheaper, but uh, other prescriptions for earning grace on your own were getting less stringent uh, th- because the the church was trying to give comfort to people who didn't feel that they were getting comfort out of the message of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this excitement in the air, and it, um, it just results in uh, people across society uh, saying, we want to become pastors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there... They didn't really have to go out and, and uh, help people decide. Uh, people decided. And, of course, key in that was the local pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was a good model, um, it certainly helped. It, there, there were people who, who uh, knew that, that there was more to the church and, and more to the gospel than what they were receiving from their pastor and went for that reason too. But, yeah. but there was a kind of enthusiasm in the, in the air. And I, I think in some ways that's not our social, uh, cultural situation at mm-hmm. all today. On the other hand, when you've, when you've sort of gotten a feel, a glimpse of what the ministry can be, there's precisely this kind of excitement, I think, in the ministry yeah. because of the challenge of, of, of uh, a crisis of pastoral care or a crisis of care of any kind in the lives of many people. Yeah. And so you, you've still got a lot of self-satisfied people, maybe more today than in Luther's time, um, but we've got an awfully lot of hurting people in every social class right. and in every community. And um, the, the challenge of being able to communicate the good news in Jesus Christ, um, uh, well, it's, it's what I thought was attractive and why I was willing to tell my parents that 
I knew better than they did what I should do with my life or what the Lord should do with my life. Um, uh, I think, think that that kind of excitement in the air is still there. Yeah, especially um, that, that the gospel had been clarified and yeah. that it was, um, it, there is something really uh, profoundly uh, human and exciting about uh, having your sins forgiven. Yeah. Or uh, having confidence again in God after a lot of that confidence had been stripped away. Yes. And the, the Reformation uh, sort of unleashed this confidence in people um, that you, know, you, you can't help but get excited, feel joy, yeah. uh, finally be at some, some sense of peace. And like you say, in, in parishes where, in churches where the pastor is delivering the clear gospel of Jesus, all of a sudden it's like, wow, I want to be yeah. a part of that. It's yeah. uh, life-giving and it's, um, it creates uh, peace and healing and wholeness where there was broken and death and despair. Yeah. Um, that's really, really exciting. And I, I think as we were saying before, uh, even when there's not that kind of pastoral model, the word somehow gets out. Yeah. And what, I, what I've encountered um, directly myself in India, for instance, um, but also encountered already on this campus uh, 655, well, a long time ago as a student, we had a, a classmate who was a, a, a former Pentecostal pastor. Mm-hmm. What I encountered in India and what my um, former doctoral student, my successfully former doctoral student, um, Justin Linden, has encountered in Brazil is that among Pentecostals, for instance, uh, well, my own experience in India was uh, we had a four-week seminar on on some key writings of Luther. And the first week, they sat there sort of bracing themselves for, I got to go through this because I've got to pass a national exam on Luther, but I don't really want to be here. And the, the second week, they were saying, hmm, and the third and fourth week, they were the best students in the class. Wow. Because I don't think it was that they were going to give up some of their speaking in tongues and whatnot. But what they were going to do is, is fill holes in the way they looked at the world and the way they formulated their theology, their yeah. preaching uh, and pastoral care that, that they hadn't thought of. So Luther kind of blindsided them in a mm-hmm. way. Um, but I think that's true also of people who are totally outside the Christian faith. Um, all of a sudden, the proposal that we bring, that there's a very personal creator God, um, a, a very emotional God, according to Luther, I mean, he's, he's very angry. Um, and he's uh, loving beyond belief. Mm, yeah. Uh, and, and that personal God then comes and, and offers us a new identity. Mm. And for those of us who say, oh, I wish I were dead, we don't often mean that even when we say it. But some people really do mean it when they say it. And, um, well, you and I can say, do we have a deal for you? Right. Let's go to the baptismal font and receive the death of Christ and bury our sins in his tomb and, mm. and be raised with him to to walk in a life that's full of sacrifice and that has joy 
in the midst of that mm. living for others. That's beautiful. It, yeah, I, I, there's there's a lot that I want to talk about the the Pentecostalism just because I've, well yeah, since we've we've spoken last maybe on under the fig tree uh, since I was an MDiv and I didn't finish STM but started the graduate school I've officially been accepted into the PhD program just a few weeks ago Woo-hoo. and so now really need to begin to think about dissertation and focus and things like that but when I took uh, pneumatology with dr sanchez in the spring what's pneumatology we, we did talk about that oh, yeah. I, I brought it up earlier <laughs> but just studying the holy spirit um I, I think maybe on our first episode back of under the fig tree we were talking about what have we been up to in, in pneumatology just just because again it's not that we don't have theology of the holy spirit in the lutheran church and not even to say we don't have rich theology of the holy spirit which is very christocentric because this is the personal God that you're talking about. This yeah. is how we know God humanly is through Jesus. Um, and that isn't to remove the Father or the Holy Spirit from the picture. They play major roles in the whole thing. It is one God. Uh, but I had to read a lot of Pentecostal mm, sure. theology because they're the ones who are talking about the Holy Spirit nonstop. Yeah. And one was Frank Machia, and his whole thing is justification and sanctification are really the same thing. And we're like, well... It's just like saying that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one God, and yet they're they're still distinct. Just just leave justification alone, bro. Just, this, is, this is what we hang our hat on. Um, so I, I kind of want to go down that rabbit hole, but I want to pause for a moment and kind of linger on this question about uh, raising up pastors in and around uh, the confessors of the Augsburg Confession, the original Lutherans. Uh, be- Remind me that I have two things to say about what you just said about the Holy Spirit and justification and sanctification. Perfect. Uh, because, well, I imagine, so I, I mean, my my study in history is, of course, limited because you only do what you're required to do to get your degree. And I d- haven't chosen history for academia, but uh, but the church was modeled a, a little different. I imagine that the modern Roman Catholic Church, after all their councils up to now, is still relatively similar but still different uh so luther's coming out of the roman catholic church or the church as they say um and they have a different model for caring for people they have monasteries they have the priesthood and then did they have pastors local parish pastors as well well yes um the term pastor wasn't used very much okay uh they had um pfarrer which are people who are responsible for a parish right but they were ordained uh, to the holy ministry. Um, But the whole conception of Christianity in the Middle Ages was, I think, still that the structure of the Christian faith had been determined by the the, uh, pagan antecedents. And those religions were religions of sacrifice to a large extent, where we had to go to the gods to, to... seal the relationship or make the relationship. And so uh, we didn't, the church didn't have enough catechists, it didn't have enough preachers. Mm. Um, when the princes decided... Because that decided, didn't fit into all the sacrificing and the, the teaching just wasn't as big of a deal. Yeah, and, and most of these places uh, just became Christian uh, as a political decision, sure. mm-hmm. um, especially in Germany. Uh, your tribal leaders uh, 
uh, kings, dukes, whatever, um, would make the decision and everyone would be baptized. Uh, and then, um, so there, wa there wasn't adequate personnel, there wasn't adequate educational structures to really train the leadership that the church needs. Uh, and that's one of the big differences that the Reformation made. Uh, the Roman Catholics immediately recognized that and began to re require seminary education, even though uh, it took a long time to actually make good on that promise. Also in Lutheran churches, mm. um, the, the educational standard and, and level varied for a long time into the 19th century, really. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but you have this situation in which the local, let's call him pastor because that's our word, the local pastor was basically seen as a priest who performed sacrifices on behalf of the people to take their offerings to God. What Luther discovered was that that system, which hadn't worked for him existentially, he was just torn apart by it because it put the burden on him. Um, uh, that system wasn't what, what the Bible was really conveying about about the nature of the church, the nature of the faith. It was instead that God comes to us uh, instead of, and, and you've got in the Middle Ages, it, there's strong teaching on grace. It's just that the grace produces the ability to do the works that are pleasing mm. uh, to God. And, and Luther said, no, uh, the, the thing that makes me pleasing throughout is God's love for me, God's favor for me. I'm his child. And you love a child no matter what. Uh, so it's not my works. My works come because I respond with love to the, to the Father who has this design for human life. So the pastor then becomes um, preacher more than priest. He still conducts the liturgy. Uh, Luther certainly uh, highly prized the office of ministry, praised it. Um, but he also saw the power in the word of God. Uh, also in the mouths of laity. And so um, so w what you actually have is a profound shift in the role of the pfarrer, the, the local clergy man who is responsible for re the religious life, for the leadership of the religious life of the parish. And that means you've got to have education. Right. And so the university becomes uh, a vital part of, of Lutheran uh, church life and so forth. So, uh, yeah, the, the Reformation has all sorts of implications for society in general as well as for the, what happens in the church. And that, that change in the image of the local um, Fahar, the person responsible for the spiritual life of the parish, that, that's one of the biggies. Right. Dr. Kolb, we have many more uh, questions for you in our podcast episode is beginning to run long. Uh, so listeners, what we'll do, we're going to take this episode into two segments. So you've listened to the first segment. Uh, we're going to break here and the next segment of the episode will be published next Monday again with Dr. Kolb.